Welcome to One Panel Later, where two librarians from opposing fandoms conquer the world of comics and manga. I'm Angela, and today Kelly's not with us, which may actually be surprising to you because Kelly's never with me because she had a baby. But uh, what you don't know is that we've had a bunch of pods in the can ready to re-release them and do everything, and then something like the apocalypse happened. So Kelly's busy off with her baby and her husband and telecommuting, and so I brought on a friend. Uh, Hello, Amy Wright. Hi, Angela. How are you? I'm great. We've been meaning to have you on the pod for a long time and under better circumstances. Um, but I I think that you're one of the more uh, fascinating people in the world of library comics. I would even claim to call you maybe the most powerful woman um, in librarian comic ship right now, if that's not too much of a big jump. Um, we met at the San Diego Comic-Con Educators conference we were on a committee together um and then you went off to become prime minister of the graphic novel roundtable um so can you tell everybody like who you are how you got into comic books and what the heck the graphic novel roundtable is totally so as you know we would say in comics origin story (laughs) (laughs) so i mean it was funny um what led me to that point at the San Diego Comic-Con Educator Day was sort of, I, I mean, when you go to library school or when you decide to be, go into um, library services, I don't think many of us are like, you know what, comic book librarian, that's what I want to do. That's my life's work. Um, so for me, um, you know, I had worked in a library a long time um, on and off for almost a decade before I went to library school. And um, I've always been a big reader. Uh, I've talked about this in a few other podcasts. So if anyone hears this, I'm trying to give my mom like accolades after the fact, because my mom was actually uh, an early literacy teacher. And so I was raised sort of unusual, I'm realizing, in that she didn't put any restrictions on my reading. So I'd always been a very broad reader. Like I read a lot of nonfiction. I love sci-fi, but like I love romance too. Love comic books, always have. So Long story short, when I became a librarian, I was like, oh, like this just assumed that this would be part of my work. Um, I'm not a huge manga reader, for example, but um, one of the first library jobs I had, uh, a coworker was a huge manga reader and a real advocate for teen services. So like we redid that. So it's sort of been something I've always done, but something that was in the background and part of my work. And then when I was working in New York, uh, so I was the manager for school outreach and the My Library NYC project, which is the largest school library partnership in North America. And as part of that initiative, we created special collections for schools. And we also did professional development sessions with educators. And so this is sort of, again, one of these moments, if you will, um, for me, like in terms of my origin story, this is right around the time uh, New York City uh, embraces the Common Core. They're one of the first cities to embrace Common Core. And um, they also add March uh, by John Lewis, Andrew Aiden, and Nate Powell to the social studies curriculum as a recommended text. And so we had already been adding uh, comic books to the educators' um, collections that we were loaning out to schools. Um, like the Manga Math was a huge hit, um, adding in a lot of like nonfiction picture books, even for like grades three, four, and five. But this for me was sort of a tipping point where I was like, <laughs> became from, oh, this is something I do to be like, this is something I'm going to advocate for. Because um, I went into schools and even working with um, my team, we were hearing so much feedback, even from fellow library staff, that when we were talking about, for example, using a title like March, people were like, eh, I 
I can't really use that. Like, that's a comic book. And we were like, this is a nonfiction comic book that tells the life story of like a sitting congressman who is also the last surviving member of the big six, i.e. like the most, some of the most pivotal figures in civil rights in America. And we're like, also it's in your curriculum. <laughs> um, and so that for me was sort of a tipping point. And we were at a point there with a the school partnership that we knew um, not only with Common Core, which is really talking about a shift in instructional practice and really encouraging more interdisciplinary learning, we really wanted to expand our own base of knowledge. Um, the team that I worked with in New York, um, Dream Team, uh, we each brought different specialties to the table. So one of uh, my coworkers was really into gaming and education. Uh, a few coworkers were really into early literacy. Um, some coworkers were really into fandom. And so collectively, we all sort of explored and we had the ability that we had funding to do so where we went to, um, we became essentially education adjacent librarians. And so we were going to social studies conferences. And as part of that, we really picked up going to more cons. And so I'd been going to New York Comic Con for a few years. I had presented there. Um, one of the presentations I'd done with two colleagues from New Jersey in 2013 was actually comics and a common core. And that was really well received. And I was like, oh, it's surprising. There's definitely seems to be a hunger for this stuff, but I didn't think I'd be doing it full time. So anyway, fast forward, we start to do more of this collectively as a team in New York. And that's when I find out, oh my gosh, <laughs> I could actually like go to San Diego Comic-Con and get a badge. <laughs> and, like, this is sort of selfish, <laughs> but I was like, it was always on my bucket list. And I was like, wait a minute, they have sessions at the library. And if I like, cause I had been going obviously to New York um, with a professional badge that Reed Poff had been offering, but it never occurred to me that they did that for other shows or that the Beyond that, that there was this going on in San Diego, and also I found out about the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. And so, um, my last year in New York, uh, we were very lucky to have funding for conferences, and it was sort of, if you will, the unicorn of library funding in that it was unencumbered funding that I could use for professional development for myself and my team. And so. We went to a lot of cons that year, like different conferences, <laughs> literacy conferences, social studies conferences. And I was also like, I really want to poke at this. Like, I want to go to as many um, comic conferences for educators and librarians as I can. And so that year I went to Emerald City um, and checked out the pop-up library. I went to San Diego conference for librarians and educators. Um, I went to the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, Library and Educator Day. Um, and then that fall in New York, um, which was shortly before I left New York Public, we had started the uh, New York Comic Con at the New York Public Library, which is a single day of professional development. And now we actually, the, this past fall, um, my colleague and dear friend in New York, Emily Drew, she had, oh my gosh, it was like 30 different sessions happening simultaneously, like multiple keynotes. And so it kind of became a big thing. And then from that, you know, I sort of, got roped into doing ALA stuff. I had never been an ALA person before, and uh, I blame Tina Coleman. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, after I had done the event in New York, um, I, this is when I moved back to Canada, and I was like, no, you know, I'm going to take a few steps back. I'm going to, you know, just focus on, you know, smaller things. And Tina was like, do you miss doing this kind of like large-scale organizing? And I was like, well... <laughs> And um, that was how I started to get more involved with everything. And um, that year, I went back to Emerald City, organized some sessions for Emerald City. 
uh, organized sessions for C2E2. So we expanded our uh, library and educator programming that year at C2E2. The pop-up library at C2E2, which has been run for years, especially the past few years, um, by my colleague through the roundtable, Natalie DeJong, um, it just even got bigger and we started to do more stuff. And I went back to the Toronto Comic Arts Festival and I helped out as an organizer there. And then, yeah, then I ended up in San Diego organizing and I was like, wow, I really like doing this. Um, and I think the thing that I felt very lucky is, especially having worked with uh, the school system in New York for a long time and working in a system like New York, um, I had a lot of experience, unfortunately, writing those kind of one-page memos and being like, what's the innovator <laughs> pitch for this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, seriously, I kind of love-hate those things. Um, and for me, I was like, okay, like this is something I really believe in. I think it gets down to good library practice. And getting down to like even how I grew up. Like my mom didn't put any restrictions on my reading. I had a great local library where I grew up and they never told me don't read that. And the more that I've read, not just about comics reading, but you know, reading in general, all pretty much best practices point to if kids feel confident with their reading, if they feel passionate about what they're reading, like they'll do well. <laughs> um, so anything I think that would diminish the sort of what people feel passionate about, like, I'm not really on board with that and I will fight against that. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I will be the president of the <laughs> first graphic novel and comics roundtable. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I forget how vital and essential Tina Coleman is to everything. I love yep. our ALA liaisons. Um, I couldn't do anything. I'm on the intellectual freedom one and we have Kristen and I, we would just be floating adrift without her. Um, but the, the thing about it is the graphic novel roundtable isn't just new, but I think it's like the fastest growing roundtable in ALA. There's a lot of worry about roundtables and where they fit and everything. And having gone to midwinter and everything that I don't feel like that's the same for the graphic novel roundtable. I mean, it's been a really exceptional to see. So, I mean, one of the biggest things, and I sort of, because I wasn't really involved with ALA prior to this, I felt like I was coming in blind, but maybe in a good way, because I wasn't sort of jaded. I was like, oh, this is fine. We can get a round table made. I didn't realize until we were doing our presentation and stuff that, A, we were the first round table added in five years, and we were also added at a time in which ALA has been trying to for a lot of reasons, you know, minimize the kind of creation of roundtables because, you know, in general, there is sort of this lingering fear, fear and worry about everything. I mean, ALA is, I like to think of it as a gigantic kind of cruise ship, like the oldest, largest library organization in the world, you know, and I do think the best thing that we had going for us is the fact that, um, the graphic novel and comics, it had been a member interest group for almost a decade. And I mean, you had people like obviously Tina pulling everybody together. We like to joke, she's like the Nick Fury of everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you had people like Robin Brenner and Eva Volan um, leading things for so long. And also the member interest group, even though we weren't an official round table, had been doing programming at ALA annual for the Friday forum. I'm totally going to get it wrong. I think it's about six or seven years. Um, and so the fact that they had been a dedicated presence of doing programming, a dedicated group of people at the cons. I can hear your cats. That's awesome. <laughs> She's very angry at me. <laughs> <laughs> my dog is now, um, she made me move her bed under my desk. So she is now. Yeah. By the way, she's a 95 pound Great Dane. 
and she's under my I have, I have seen photos. She is adorable. <laughs> yeah, she's she's pretty lovely. We actually call her the Dainty Dane because she's too small for a Great Dane, right? Like she's huge. Only ninety-five pounds. Yeah, yeah. She's, like, she's like she's like a pocket Great Dane. Um, <laughs> so um, I think there's that. And the other thing is, I would say we have a very committed group of membership because. Um, you know, sometimes librarianship can be a little status quo still. Put <laughs> it lightly. And so I feel like when you are you take a stance and you're like, oh, I, I really like want to see more comics and libraries and community outreach, you're sort of committing I wouldn't call it professional suicide, but you are definitely taking a stand. And so for us, it just felt like there were so many people already out there doing this great work and then just having this umbrella to unite us all has, I think that that's part of why. Um, and also it represents, I would say, we are something that represents a new sort of facet of our profession. Um, a lot of us are people who maybe came to librarianship non-traditionally or not as our first career path. Um, I mean, my background was in nonprofit. Um, I did nonprofit like part-time because the jobs are pretty terrible. <laughs> I mean, in terms of like funding, like I love the work. Um, but like my background is doing community outreach, especially with immigrant and refugee communities in Canada. And that was um, kind of how I came into it is the program I was working on uh, got its funding slashed. And I was like, oh, I need a part-time job. And I had worked at the library part-time all through university. And I actually didn't realize, because I'd only worked in academic libraries up until that point, I hadn't realized that public libraries were doing so much community outreach, and it just, it felt very meaningful. I mean, it's definitely a slippery slope, and I think it's a situation so many libraries are in now, and that we've become so vital to the community as people are fighting to keep it open, because, yeah, we've had so many social services cut down, but I think for me it felt very meaningful that like I, I couldn't solve the problems of the world. <laughs> like it felt like sometimes I could when I was doing nonprofit, but I could say to a family that was struggling, you know, we have career sessions, we have some story times for your kids and like, this is all free and we're here to support you. And I think that makes people feel seen. And I think that's a real problem in terms of even what we're in right now. We're talking about social distancing and isolation <laughs> and stuff like People like to feel seen, and that's even something I found through doing comics work is, like, for a lot of people that are, I would say, still closeted comics readers, I think a lot of the work we're doing brings sort of a legitimacy and to their reading that a lot of people haven't felt for most of their lives. Um, so, yeah, and then, I, you know, and now I'm in grad school, too, doing this, so it's... Um, comics libraries and like library history has just it become what I've been doing with my life now that's like the most interesting origin story like <laughs> cool 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 uh I liked this thing and now I like kick ass at this thing you're like you're welcome uh, speaking of dark times which uh you guys are listening to this it'll be our first pod back so you'll hear this on Monday it's currently Friday and while things change every five minutes uh, we still have this thing looming over us called COVID-19. So um, how is your your quarantine life actually doing? Well, I, I mean, I so I have been a full-time grad student for the past year and a half. And I checked in with my grad school cohort via video chat yesterday. And we were all sort of joking that being a full-time grad student, especially <laughs> if you choose to go back to grad studies after more than a decade of a full-time career, 
you're sort of used to a social isolation, <laughs> existential dread, questioning your life choices. So in some ways, uh, living on limited means, you know, I feel like it was good prepping. Um, but so there's, that's been, you know, um, but I, I, it's been different. I think for everybody, um, you know, definitely miss the person to person contact, but I will say you doing this work. Um, so, so much of the work that I've done through the library comics community has been virtual. Um, so many of the people I've met, friends that I've met at cons, you know, we meet at cons. So it's like, we'll see each other in person, maybe only a handful of times a year. Um, but see each other on video chat or touch base over podcasts. Um, so in some ways it's like more of that certainly, but like my life as I knew it already had a lot of that. So it's like, okay, it's not too bad. Um, I have, you know, a really fantastic, lovely dog. So she's been keeping me sane with a lot of good walks. <laughs> and, uh, I think, you know, for all of us, it's kind of reminded me that the library, you know, for me growing up was a really safe, comforting place. And like to think about what can we do virtually while respecting all of our bandwidth and trying to keep us, keep us all like sane, like how can we help to continue to support people? Um, so that's sort of what I've been doing in the past two weeks is thinking how through the round table we can help people. Um, but also how can we signal boost other colleagues? Uh, there's so many people doing like great virtual story times and also just reaching out to members and everybody else and being like, Oh yeah, we, we see you like, this is, this, this is a lot. <laughs> um, but we're going to get through this. I, because I'm studying history, I've been reading a lot about the 1918 pandemic. Oh, I know. But one thing that's brought me a lot of heart is that they got through it. Um, it was very serious. But also, if you look at, you know, especially city by city comparisons, the cities that have done, and I mean, the most classic one floating around is St. Louis versus Philadelphia. And St. Louis implemented social distancing pretty much as soon as possible. And St. Louis, they flattened the curve in 1918 with limited medical resources. So I'm like, okay. This is like the hundred year storm for us and uh we're gonna get through this. It's gonna be weird and it's like life as we know it is changing, but yeah. Yeah. It's it's I was planning to go to Chicago, I'm sure as you were, uh, for ALA and um ALA is now cancelled and you're the outgoing president, soon to be the first graphic novel roundtable outgoing president. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what what is that life like um still leading the round table? even though you're about to have this transitionary phase, um, how, how has life been like as this in the sea of storm of what ALA is going through um, right now? Um, I would say <laughs> we're definitely in a time of transition. I feel like we're in a time <laughs> of transition for ALA, for our profession, you know, first again, life as we know it. Um, I mean, one of the things I think that's been percolating around a lot of people, you know, being in quarantine during COVID-19 and thinking about stuff is, you know, what can we do differently going forward? Um, for a lot of people who are finally working from home for the first time, you know, I know pretty much every library job I've had, I have asked for the ability to work from home at least one day a week. Um, if, one of the jobs I had, I did a lot of cataloging. Uh, I was a collection development librarian. And then being a manager, too, there's so much administration you end up doing. There's a lot of leading your team, but there's a lot of admin. And I think, in general, what we're seeing is 
a lot of people have been very resistant to embrace any of those things. And now we're in a situation in which we've had to catch up in real time. And people are like, wait a minute, I probably could have worked from home one day a week anyway. <laughs> right? Um, I, I have also realized that. I was like, man, I could have been in my pajamas one day a week. Well, and it's a different, I mean, we talk a lot about like we have bigger issues looming too, like with things like climate change. Like if we all work from home one day a week, that's a huge thing. And not to mention like a work-life balance. Um, you know, I remember I graduated library school in 2009 and I remember reading, um, I knew because I came to libraries kind of as my second career and I'd been working part-time and that kind of stuff. I knew that I'd be asked to be a manager of some sort, whether it's managing a project or an initiative or a team or a department. So I sort of very purposely took management classes. I did a lot of reading up on like grant writing and took classes in that in library school. And so to more than 10 years ago, we were talking about things like flexible work schedules and like job sharing and work from home. And I was like, hit the library profession, like in 2009, being like, oh, okay, I need to work with my team to like think about how we're going to embrace like 21st century librarianship without realizing that the profession, I feel, was still 20th century librarianship. And I'm like, <laughs> oh. Um, so I do, it's weird. Um, but I'm also somebody who like, I, I guess I've had an interesting life personally. Like, you know, I grew up in the States, um, but I chose to move to Canada when I was 18 by myself, uh, to go to university. Um, and I am sort of looking at this as like, this is another big life transition. It's something that we're all going through, but I'm like, okay. Personally, I know what it's like to wake up every morning and be like, oh, my life as I knew it is totally different. And uh, I I guess the thing is, like, I joke, my family is like, oh, you're so cynical. And I was like, yes, but I'm a chosen optimist. So <laughs> um, I'm sort of like, how can we, especially knowing that, like, yeah, annual is canceled for the first time in 75 years. So, you know, the last time they canceled annual was World War Two, And knowing that, like, what can we do to support our membership and our greater library communities? I mean, one of the things we've been hearing from members, and it was definitely something I struggled with for a long time professionally, was just how to afford things, um, whether it's travel or membership costs or conference registration. I mean, that is something that's been looming over our profession for a long time and kind of untalked about. And people are like, well, this is the way we do it. I, 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 Look, I'm going to swear because this is, you said this was a swearing podcast. I talk, <laughs> it's I a talk, swear podcast. I fucking hate that answer. Like, don't tell me we've always done it that way. Like, that is a bullshit answer. Um, you know, I think we don't have like a Hippocratic oath necessarily for our profession, but I think some of the biggest things that we all sort of try to do in our work is like do no harm and also support our communities. And like, our communities are always changing and our communities are ourselves too. So, like, how are we supporting the next generation of library workers? What are we doing to meet them where they are? And what are we doing to actually make sure that our profession reflects the communities we serve? And if we just continue to maintain the status quo of this is how we've always done things, we're just going to continue to replicate, you know, more library, I would say gatekeepers in many ways. And I don't want to be a part of that. So I'm like, okay, this is really it's really fucked up and this is really weird. It's a change of pace for all of us, but like, um, how can we use this as an opportunity? I'm also like, I'm a huge sci-fi reader and I've been rereading a lot of Octavia Butler and man, her sci-fi is like, it hits you right in the guts. Mm -hmm. But she also always 
has this hopeful message and she's always like okay change is gonna touch everybody and change everything but like good can come out of that so yeah I think I think you hit it right on the nose uh transitioning my team to go digital and our profession tends to be older and it tends to have a lot of gatekeepers and we don't like change and you know, when you get a group of library staff members to go home and access their internet and use their computer cameras for the first time, um, I, I think they they have this struggle of what the world was like. If we don't do programs and desk, what what are we? If we're not immediately talking to the public in a program, how do we survive? Yeah. And I think ideally as teams settle in, they're pivoting to this like, notion of like we can serve our public so much more like we've diverted already collection funds into overdrive and are pushing like what our hoopla limits can be because you know we're trying to solve these questions and figure out how do we fix this digital divide between our communities where some can access all of this and some can't and and we talked about digital divide in a great grand sense of like come into the library and now we're having we're being tasked with how do we fix it when you can't come to the library and how do we provide people this access? And f I think for the first time we're asking ourselves the questions we should have been asking 10 years ago. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We're a little, we, we're a little behind the curve, but uh, really looking to flatten it as they say. Yeah, no, I think that's where I'm like, okay. I, I mean, I'm seeing so many um, educator friends and colleagues be like, oh, it's really cool that I'm asked to like teach online and this stuff. Does anybody want to talk about the fact that most of my students don't have maybe Wi-Fi at home or have anything to access Wi-Fi at home other than smartphones? Like, mm -hmm. um, and that is such an untalked about thing. I mean, I know for a lot of universities that maybe didn't close as quickly as people might have liked them to part of that was pushback from administration and professors acknowledging the very real financial burden that so many students are under in that they may have been there on scholarship and that might be their only place in which they have access to amenities and or they don't have somewhere to go back to. Um, I think our work touches on, our work really holds up a mirror to the communities that we work in and there's a lot of things that we're butting right up against that, yeah, we've been talking around for more than a decade, which is, you know, people don't have access to resources equitably. And that's not something like doing programming is awesome, but that kind of band-aids the problem. It doesn't actually address a lot of systemic issues. And um, the last library, I was a library manager and I mean, I had so many of my teens leaving the library at night with nowhere to go, or they were teens in care and they couldn't even get a library card because, you know, their guardianship situation was questionable. And these are in real time people that we had trouble serving. And now how are we serving those people? I think it's, it's agitating issues that we should have been agitating and it's shining a light on us as a profession Maybe in a way that we don't always want to be seen, but like I believe in trying to do things differently. And, you know, if this is something that we realize that we're not doing as well as we could, like we can change it. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, you're trying to see the silver lining to everything right now because things are kind of shitty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
so if this if these moments are you know the librarians i work with now look at overdrive in a different way or it's finally the push that it's taken my stodgy library to get hotspots checked out to people or we're finally looking at we have a large homeless population like finally looking at how we can provide access outside of the building for them and their needs then that's all like the positive stuff of this terrible oh, yeah. situation oh a hundred percent because i think again, it, it is shining that light on things that like we've always talked around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now we're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, we'll deal with that tomorrow. And finally, tomorrow has come for us. Well, and we all have that in our own personal lives. Like there are so many things, <laughs> you know, where I was like, I'll get to that tomorrow. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> yep. I know. It's the worst. Um, so you are doing some fascinating things. Speaking of like pivoting and being able to like address the need as it comes. Can you talk about what Lib Comics Online is and what Creators Assemble is and kind of the stuff that you've been doing um, during these COVID times? <laughs> these COVID times. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want to, I'm sort of, uh, in my head, I'm calling it comics in the time of COVID. Oh. <laughs> I mean, love in the time of cholera, right? It's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's so librarian, it's on the nose. Um, so the big thing for Lib Comics Online, I think it started, there's sort of two impetuses. Uh, the biggest one is we had so many, um, instances of orphan programming. So canceled programming from Emerald City, um, canceled programming from WonderCon and my colleague, uh, Moni Brett from, uh, Southern California. She had been organizing some of our sessions, uh, our sessions for WonderCon, um, Natalie, my, the convention chair for the roundtable, had been working with creators and publishers to do stuff for Emerald City again. So we were in this situation in which, you know, a lot of sessions that we'd organized got canceled. Um, I'm sure you've seen online, there was a whole uh, hashtag ECC online, and especially a lot of creators facing the very real economic uh, reality that suddenly their show, like a show like Emerald City, which might represent 10, 15, 20% of their earnings for the year got canceled. And they were like, oh my gosh. And I think the big thing, especially with comics, that you're talking a lot about indie comic shops, uh, creators that are freelance. And so we were like, okay, what can we do to kind of signal boost, support our community, and also bring the content that would have happened um, in real time at something like Emerald City or WonderCon to our audience. So that's where money came up with the idea of Creators Assemble. And we're modeling it on, we did have done um, two years of uh, webinars now for Band Books Week. And uh, the webinar format for that has been, you know, we have a library worker interview a creator and talk about issues of intellectual freedom, um, book banning. In some cases, we have creators whose books have been banned. And so just having like a nice conversation um, around those topics, of course, we'll be talking about like, what are you doing now? <laughs> like to the future of the comics industry. And so that was part of it. And then the other part is, we do already have a very vibrant online community through um, hashtag libcomics. One of the things that's been amazing to see that is to see the growth internationally. We actually have a graphic novel and comics uh, roundtable counterpart in Australia now. They actually were uh, approved by the Australian um, Library Association. And we have colleagues in the UK, especially through the graphic medicine community. 
uh, not to mention people doing so much relevant adjacent work through examples for the kid lit community. And we're like, okay, how can we like signal boost and start to aggregate um, and support all the great work that's already going on. So it's really like, okay, with comics online. And then we're like, oh, readers advisory. Cause we, we do this anyway at the cons. Um, we have a book match form that we use at um, cons that we'll do at our pop-up library. It's actually based on the book match form that uh, Brooklyn Public Library developed. So props to Brooklyn. And um, we actually launched that on Monday. So we've already had actually quite a few people. I did a lot of reading recommendations last night. My partner was like, why did you come to bed at two o'clock in the morning? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> recommendations um but it's actually and it made it was actually a lot of fun too because again it's like okay this is a situation we're all in i was like what can i do and i was like i can recommend some really good comics to people and i like doing readers advisory too because it gives me a good opportunity to rack my brain and like ping colleagues and be like what do you think about this or am i missing a publisher so those are sort of our three principal um, streams right now. Um, the other thing, we have been in touch with comic book stores because a lot of comic book stores, dare I say most comic book stores, are really struggling right now as small independent businesses and also dealing with uh, distribution issues now that Diamond has ceased delivery of um, new comic books as of I think this past Wednesday was the last shipment. Um, so going forward, people are like, shruggy like question mark um so one of the things we'll be launching starting next wednesday is we're not calling it new comic book day because like question mark new comic book day will that exist the concept <laughs> i don't know um but wednesday i think is this common if you will be in the comics community of like new comics on wednesday so what we're going to do every wednesday is um feature some new and notable titles um and hopefully have um live uh, shout outs to our favorite comic book stores and maybe even have some live readers advisory from comic book stores um, throughout north america potentially even further afield um one of the great things i think that we have seen is a comics community really rallying around each other. Um, I just logged on to Boom's site last night as I was doing Reader's Advisory, and they actually, their front page right now is a map all over the world of comic book stores that are still doing delivery to try to signal boost. And I'm like, that's amazing. Um, so that's sort of the mindset behind all of this is how can we support each other, give people some content, because you know we're all a little bored at home too. <laughs> and so <laughs> continue to like signal boost our community so that you know, when we come out of this, yes, the world will be a little bit different, but the world will still have comics. So um, when people want to hang out with you on Wednesdays, what's the how do they find you guys for your new and notable comics? Oh, um, so we're using the hashtag uh, libcomics online, but we're also using the hashtag libcomicsra. And so we haven't set a time yet for Wednesdays because we're still reaching out to comic book stores to find out um, what live times they might call in. But what we will be doing is all throughout the Wednesday. That was my dog just tried to jump in an Ikea bag. (laughs) (laughs) Just just the visual of that is enough to get me going all day. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah. So, so dear listeners, imagine a 95 pound dainty Dane trying to jump into a large blue plastic Ikea bag. She probably would fit. I mean, she's like, she has a cat mentality of if I fit, I fit, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, on Wednesday, uh, you can find us um, on the Lib Comics channel. So we're at Lib Comics on Instagram and Twitter. 
um, and we will be doing um, really focusing RA. We don't have, again, a set time, but if you find us on Wednesdays at the Comics Channel, we will be doing live spotlights with more to come on that. That's awesome. Yeah, my biggest worry, we just had a um, female started, female run and owned queer comic book store open up like last week. Uh, is no. a, a really bad time to open. Um, and they had to cancel their, their opening con comic con ceremony and they did some home delivery. And now I just, I worry about every comic book shop yeah. uh, that I love. Um, but I know that they're run my two favorite shops are run by really fierce women. Um, so I, I know that if anybody's really good at pivoting, it'll be them. Um, and I really, you know, worry about the future of comic book stores but is this going to be leading hopefully to something even better when we reopen society yeah i think well what we're even trying to do is for a lot of people who are normally like oh amazon is really late with deliveries we're like oh hey did you know that your local independent bookstore has comics and independent books a lot of local comic stores also have your favorite you know text mm -hmm. title so like did you know that they're doing delivery right now um yeah yeah, trying to signal boost the local guys is really where it's at. Um, because they're going to be the ones that stay, hopefully, afterwards. After it's all over, they're going to have, you know, they're going to be the places of community that we go back to. Oh, 100%. Um, like, one of my favorite stores and publishers, Drawn Quarterly in Montreal, um, they are literally walking around the city of Montreal right now doing hand delivery. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen photos. Curbside pickup, home delivery, yep. like... Comic shops are not going to go down with a whimper. They're no. definitely, yeah, finding ways to make it work. So this leads me to a question of, like, what do you think, like, you talked about Boom, and Boom is one of my favorite publishers. What is this, do you think, and we can only guess at this point, of course, obviously, is going to do to influence comic book creators over the next year or two? Like, when will we see the first kind of like isolation covid comics if not already in web form but like in print form yeah no i think that's that's a really good question and i wonder again i we are seeing so much digital reading of comics now i think for a lot of people that weren't digital comics readers suddenly in digital readers in general people are looking to that um but i i wonder i think the big question on everybody's mind is so much of the publishing cycle and, you know, creators' appearances is built around the cons. And so I think the biggest question on people's minds <laughs> right now is like, yeah, you know, is San Diego going to go? And if not San Diego, like, is it New York? That's the next big one. So I think whatever the next, the next in-person show is, whatever that looks like, I think that will definitely be what people are gearing a lot of their print runs around. Um, but yeah, we are seeing a lot. I mean, I am a huge reader of the nib. And, you know, the Nib's been doing really good coverage of um, COVID. And we've also seen, you know, a lot of people, again, in graphic medicine covering it. And the other thing is, I would say, um, we know that, um, okay, sorry, the dog is now eating my file folders. Because <laughs> she, she keeps hitting me with her paw and being like, pay attention to me, pay attention to the room. Yeah, prior to getting on the, the, this call, she was fine. <laughs> but now the yes. microphone is singularly diverted. Um, uh, we are, I would hope that we're actually start to see a larger uptick in comics reading in schools. Um, one of the things that we're really finding is a lot of teachers 
are, I mean, they've been left with some of them with minimal resources and like some of them are doing full curriculum. Some of them are, you know, supporting homeschooling. It's really running the gamut, but like people respond well to words and picture. And so I think we're starting to see a big uptick, um, or at least I would hope with people using that in the classrooms. And I wonder if that also might be something that actually supports and sustains the industry going forward. Um, I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about the past three years for, through the graphic novel roundtable is getting on a curriculum list, getting on a state uh, best books list, um, getting like a Texas State Mavericks or like New York Public, those are best books. Um, in Canada, we have like the Forest of Reading. Getting on any of those lists really ensures that your title stays in print. And I think one of the biggest struggles for comics especially in the past like year, year and a half, is this whole notion of comics staying in print, like comics surviving past the single issues enough to get to the trades. And that's, I, I think, where the industry has really been struggling to find its footing for a while, you know, migrating from the file customers to recognizing that the school library market is a large part of the market, if not the largest growing part of the market, and how to really pivot to that. So my hope would be that we start to see, because I think also talking about what's going on right now visually is one of the best ways for people to actually understand. Um, we talked earlier before we started recording about some of the graphics going around. And for me, like seeing a graphic of 1918 comparing a city like St. Louis versus Philadelphia, St. Louis implemented social distancing, Philadelphia did not. But seeing that rendered graphically was like, oh, like I can understand the exponential math in my head to a certain extent, but to actually see it rendered on paper and to see a graphic and be like, oh, so I do think we know how powerful words and pictures are. I think that this potentially could be, I don't know, I'm not going to say the saving grace, but like rendering this information graphically seems to resonate with people in a way that just telling people to stay home doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we're going to see such a shift in, in uh, comic books for a bit. I think I always call them like nonfiction froofy comics. Um, they're, they're the very like yep. serious comic books. Um, and I, I find that they have a, a niche reader sometimes and they're not always the teens that I work with, but now I could see, when those kids come back in the hunger they're going to have for some of that, that they maybe didn't have before. So. Oh, um, totally. and I yeah. think, you know, we have seen some really compelling, especially anthology com comics come out from other emergency situations, certainly more localized. Um, but I'm thinking about like, there was a lot of really powerful um, anthologies and personal stories that came out like post Katrina from New Orleans. Mm -hmm. um, so much. Yeah. Better. So, after the pulse shootings and exactly we tend to we tend to rally <laughs> afterwards in comic form yeah rally in comic form and i also think for a lot of people you know graphic memoirs have a very broad appeal um there are some one of the things that i give to i think that they're more personal than a lot of like yeah the, the kind of nonfiction comics you talk about like they <laughs> they have like a personal resonance that doesn't always um, translate to like typical nonfiction comics and I've found that for a lot of people that maybe aren't comics readers but if I can find a graphic memoir that is on a topic it really it, it does resonate because I do think mm -hmm. transmitting emotion via pictures is something that comics do best. <laughs>
final part of this is we always do a segment of what we're reading. And I'm, I'm looking at this giant pile the day before I left my library when we were, I knew we were closing and that staff, I assumed because my family's from the Bay area, we'd have a shelter in place order. So I like went through the shelves and said, all of these books I meant to read, I'm taking home with me in this moment. And I have read not a single one of them. Uh, just very terrible. Like if you don't read your to read list after the apocalypse where you're supposed to stay home, does your to read list even matter? Um, so what is one of the favorite things you've read either in quarantine or just one of the things that you've enjoyed reading, uh, in the last few months? Um, so, I mean, it's a funny thing I think about, yeah, working in a library or like, you know, I'm doing my history graduate degree right now. I don't always read. Like I read a lot of things, but I don't necessarily read things to completion and sit down and like read for pleasure. So I've been trying to make an effort to that prior to this, but two of the books that, uh, I started reading as everything started and that I've really been enjoying is um, I have an advanced reading copy of Gene Yang's uh, new Superman versus the KKK. Yes. Yeah. And that one, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Um, for people who don't know, it's based on the original 1940s radio play, which was Superman versus the Ku Klux Klan. And because I'm studying history and comics and comics readership, I think for me, that's such an important, if you will, historical document, because one of the things that's often talked about, especially around superhero comics, is people are like, oh, it has nothing to do with like modern times or not political. Like this is, you know, this ongoing argument. And I'm like, comics are always, I mean, art is a reflection of the creators and the times we live in. And this one, I mean, this legit happened. Like this was a super popular, like radio show in the 1940s. So I mean, if you're all like, oh, Superman, you're like, mm. <laughs> um, and it's a really powerful book just even reading it now because you're like oh this has like a lot of modern day relevance and along with that one of the shows that I was like oh, I need to watch I need to watch and I hadn't and now I finally have in quarantine is I finally started watching Watchmen on HBO ah. oh yeah and I'm like oh my gosh this is amazing because you know they start um, with the Tulsa race massacre of 1921 and this is basically kind of sadly a uh, incident almost forgotten to historical memory. And one of the things I find really interesting about comics and popular art is I really believe that it can revitalize discussion about important moments in history that sometimes we would like to forget about. And um, so along with that, I, I started rereading Watchmen. Um, and I also finally like came back to Bitterroot um, because Bitterroot actually, you know, it's like a, a monster fighting family, um, an alternative timeline, but like taking place during the Harlem Renaissance. Um, it actually has the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 as an important jumping off point as well. And I was like, wow, this is great. So um, I've been rereading Bitterroot and just loving it. And then, yeah, the, like, the sci-fi of Octavia Butler has brought me so much heart right now. I'm just like, oh my goodness, thank you, Octavia Butler. I like that you're you're reading all of this, like, really serious stuff. And I'm like, where's that book about the kids, that manga about the kids who go camping? That's oh, the one I'm going to read. Oh, no, no. I, I should say, one of actually, one of the comics that I checked out that I haven't read for a while, and I was like, I need this. This is sort of like my palate cleanser at night is... Uh, the sarah anderson's uh sarah scribbles uh like adult it is a myth and everything i have been rereading those like tom gold and 
a lot of uh, woman worlds I've been rereading. So a lot of like humorous like web comics is definitely what mm-hmm. I read at night when the existential dread is too much. <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh, and on that note, Amy Wright, thank you for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it in these times of COVID. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to One Panel Later. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. Check out our website, onepanellater.com, for a list of show notes and all the books that we mentioned here. Yeah, I like putting in the cuts at the end after the closing music. It's always the best shit. I'm always like, well, that's the end. Fuck it. We're all dead now.